Welcome to Eye on Horror, the official podcast of iHorror.com. This is episode 74, otherwise known as season four, episode 17. I am your host, James J. Edwards, and not with me as always is Jacob Davison. We'll get into that later. But also with me as always is your other other host, John Korea. How you doing, Korea? Pretty good. I miss Jacob, but you know, <laughs> he's off doing fun things. So, you know, I, I don't blame him. He's off promoting his found footage film, Dogtown, which is in some big contest that uh, I, I think we've already pushed it on our socials. So yeah. vote for his uh, movie. It, I think the voting ends once this episode comes out. But Well, then I hope you did. <laughs> he wrote, directed, starred, produced. He did edited. He did. He, it's like it's all Jacob. So if, you, if you're missing Jacob <laughs> from this episode, watch his short film. You're going to get all the Jacob. Yep. But we do have the next best thing. We have a very special guest, uh, author, critic, uh, the managing editor of The Daily Dead, uh, Heather Wixon. How are you doing, Heather? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know if I'm the next best thing, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll try my hardest to fill in. No, you'll, you'll, you'll be great. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited. We, we need this to be at least a trio because uh, <laughs> if it's just me and Korea talking, how old would that get? Oh, man, we just the ADHD that would kick around like Jacob's good at like deflecting my ADHD. So (laughs) Uh, we haven't talked in forever. Let's talk about malignant. Uh, Yes, known as malignant. (laughs) Oh, was that a dig at me? (laughs) We weren't going to let you see it until you could say it. It took me three days. (laughs) Malignant. Have we all seen Malignant? Yes. It's funny because like that feels like forever ago now. I know. There's so much that's come out since. But then I realized I was like, I haven't really had a chance to actually talk about Malignant. So now I'm really excited. Neither have we. So, yeah, Yeah. let's let's get into it. What did you guys think? I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. I just had so much fun with it. It's kind of like it's like a different movie every act because you think it's going to be this supernatural thriller and then it kind of becomes like a silence of the lambs kind of a like a crime drama and then it goes full cronenberg <laughs> in the third act for me because i'm a big uh fan of italian horror so everybody kept calling this sort of like james wan's like version of a giallo um which i don't think is very accurate i i, I there's definitely some elements in the first act that kind of set you up like you're thinking as giallo um so in that way it almost reminded me of suspiria because like the first time you ever watch the original suspiria the way that the kills are staged and stuff like that you're like oh okay we're doing this and then they pull the old switcheroo on you um and so for me like to me this just sort of has that like that kitchen sink attitude that most italian movies have where they're like we're going to throw everything we love into this one movie and just go with it. Um, so that's what I really appreciated about it. Like it, it didn't just feel specific to Gialli. It was, you know, a little bit of Fulci. You had, you know, a, a little bit of both Bava's in there kind of thrown in for good measure. Um, and for me, that's what made it fun. Like I, I will say the first time I watched it and you're sitting through like the first 30 minutes and you're like, uh, I don't know if I, I don't know what it, what's going on with this, but I'm going to hang in there. And I'm so glad I did because by the time you get to that reveal, it sort of feels very X-Files in that moment, which that's like the bar for me. Like if you can surprise me like an episode of X-Files, like I'm like, yes, I'm in. <laughs> um, and that reveal of Gabriel is the best thing I think I've seen all year in a horror movie. 
I think my favorite scene is when, um, and kind of a spoiler, but not really, when basically they're in a jail cell and every single stereotype of a female prisoner is in this jail cell. Oh, and Zoe Bell's in it? It feels like it's like out of like Death Wish 3 or something like that. Like all these characters right. have just been sitting around yeah. for like three decades just waiting for their moment. It was totally, yeah, it was totally that. It was awesome. How about you, Korea? I absolutely loved uh, Malignant and I, I agree with Heather. The the opening that like the very beginning it was a little i was like oh, i don't know i don't i don't know how i feel about this you it was think a bit it's of... going to be another james wan movie you think it's going to be another insidious or the conjuring no i was thinking like as he do as it, it kind of felt like a bit back to like dead silence which i was not a big fan of there was a bit of like overacting in the beginning like that like in the beginning when when the husband abuses her that that man was doing some real over the top acting and I was just like, I don't know what he's going for here. But yeah, by the halfway point, I was so in. There was so much like 90s Italian influence, like Heather was saying. Uh, I saw a lot of early 2000s uh, Japanese horror influence in there as well. The camera work was absolutely gorgeous. That over-the-head shot going through the house blew me away. The score, the score is amazing too. I loved it. I was going to say, just to speaking of that, like usually with like Joe Bashar's scores, like I always feel like there's there's always those touchstones where you're like, oh, this is definitely Bashara, you know, where it's like you listen for 20 minutes and you're you're ready to like go play in traffic because you're so unnerved. Um, and I loved how they just sort of kept you like reutilizing elements of where's my mind yeah, um, yeah. in such different ways. And I was just like, wow, this is really, really cool. Um, I also I think it's important um, that one of the reasons that that movie works as well as it does is because of the physical performance and the actress's name is Marina Mazeppa. Um, And I will sing her praises till the end of time because she did pretty much most of those stunts backwards and somehow made it look natural. And I still don't understand how somebody can do that stuff with their body. It just blows my mind. Yeah, when Gabriel goes into full effect, uh, the the body movement was just unnerving. It, and it was so well executed, like fully believed it. Because you've seen similar type of reveals, trying not to spoil anything, uh, in the past. But like it, they made it work so well and in such a scary way. It was so refreshing. Uh, I, I also just felt like overall the influences, I don't know, I feel... I, I wasn't in the room when James Wan pitched this, but I feel like he basically went to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers was like, oh, you made us a fuck ton of money with Aquaman. Uh, we want you to do Aquaman too. Cool, I want to do this film first. Yeah, sure, we'll give you a, a bunch of money. He's like, cool, because I want to make a B-horror movie, but with like a really good budget. And they're like, yeah, I mean, Conjuring did really well. You're going to do something like that? And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, let's say that. It's like a Charles Band movie, <laughs> but with a big budget. And actually good. Yeah. <laughs> Another movie that, that I want to talk about, and I don't know if either of you have seen this. Have you guys seen Lamb? I have. No. Have you? Oh, my God, Lamb. I don't even want to talk too much about it then if you haven't seen it, because Korea, you just have to see it. It's one of those movies where half the world is going to love it, half the world is going to hate it. What camp are you in, Heather? Um, I loved it, but I, I also, loved it too. I also recognize it's not really a horror movie. It's a no. fantasy movie with a family drama. Yeah, it isn't at all. And I'm a little I'm a little upset that they're pitching it as an A24 horror movie, which I guess that's the only studio that could pull off a horror movie or pull off calling it a horror movie, I guess. Um, But they are pitching it as a supernatural horror movie. It's like, no, it's not. You're right. It's a fantasy movie, but it's 
I don't even want to talk about it too much. You just have to see it. it's beautiful. It was shot in Iceland and every Iceland Icelandic movie to me feels like a tourism video. I mean, it just makes me want to visit because the, it's the countryside is so beautiful. I mean, I live for that kind of weather, you know, the, the, you know, long johns and, you know, and big jacket kind of thing. But the thing is, it, it takes itself super seriously and the performances are great. And it's just like, just a gem of a film, but then it dips its toe into the absurd just enough for you to be like, what the hell? And at one point, <laughs> one of the characters actually, it, it's a, one of the, the, the family drama that Heather was talking about, the, uh, the father's, the husband's uh, brother, Peter. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Peter, he comes and he he actually he asks questions that the audience is wondering. And the first one he asks is, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you're, like, you're like, yeah, tell us what the fuck is this? So, oh, it's it's just a really crazy movie. dude. But but I also really liked I, I was saying that moment. I really like the the answer that they give where he just responds. This is happiness. And yeah, to me, yeah. that was just like. These two people were so desperate for this kind of a connection to anything. And yeah, it was it's strange because it's like to me, it was I was a little more emotional about it because of certain story elements to it. And the little lamb itself is just so freaking cute, like and precious. Yeah. And you just want to, like, protect it forever. But yeah, I, I think I, I love what you mentioned about Iceland is sort of this backdrop, because the fact that like there's no nighttime really throughout a lot of this movie, it's just like this weird dusky gray that kind of just and that's like their that's their existence and that to me kind of messes you up as a viewer because you're always so used to seeing like daytime and nighttime so visually signified where like everything in this movie just sort of blended and it was really disconcerting in that way where you're like wait they're going to bed what time is it like (laughs) is it normal you can't live like this uh that would that would drive people insane it's like other other parts of the world it's always night you know well, it's kind of like Midsommar, remember? Is it tomorrow? <laughs> when she asked, <laughs> is it tomorrow? Yeah. Um, yeah, Korea, you have to see Lamb. It's, uh, uh, it's batshit crazy. It's on my list. I'm planning on doing a double feature of that and Pig at some point. You know, so that and way pig. it's a full course, you know. <laughs> a whole Easter uh, double feature. Yeah, it might turn into a triple feature and watch First Cow with it, you know. <laughs> just, just run the whole barnyard gamut there. It's, it's the old McDonald triple feature. <laughs> yeah, then turn it into a four-picture feature and watch, like, you know, Funny Farm or uh, Charlotte's Web, maybe. I don't uh, know. Just go with the animal theme. You're you losing know? it because they're not in the titles, though, now. Ah, damn. Should have stopped at First Cow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you had a really, really solid run there. <laughs> uh, I actually uh, watched... Uh, I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about uh, Don't Tell a Soul. Have you guys seen this one yet? No, I haven't. Uh, this one came out earlier this year. Uh, it's got uh, Jack Dylan Grazer, who was in uh, the It movie, the recent It movies, and Shazam. Uh, he uh, it also has Rain Wilson in it. Um, it's about these two brothers who break into a house to steal money from this uh, old woman who, while her house is getting fumigated for termites. Probably I don't know. It's, it's getting fumigated. It's got the whole circus tent over it. Um, and they run into a security guard played by Rain Wilson. And while they're running from him, he falls into a hole. And I'm trying. I don't want to spoil anything, but the film takes like some really dark turns that that are very interesting, especially in the uh, power dynamics between the two brothers and Rain Wilson, who's in a hole. So you got like the older brother, who's very much so like, 
oh, we don't have a problem. The one witness to us committing this crime is in a hole, so let's leave him. But the younger brother wants to, like, you know, help him out and stuff. But the mood shifts and some of the acting performances, especially Rain Wilson, because as try as he might, he will always be, uh, what's his face from The Office? Sorry, I don't watch The Office. Is it Shrew? Dwight. Dwight, Dwight. Shrew. There we go. And you're right. He will. Even in House of a Thousand Corpses. I mean, I loved him in The Meg, so... Uh, I, I feel like I'm in the mi- minority with the Meg, though. Uh, again, I will always say Jason Statham just needed to say Megalodon like five more times, and that film would have won an Oscar. Um, but, uh, yeah, Don't Tell a Soul, it, I, it was one of those like s- small titles. I think it got like a real quiet release earlier this year, but it's really solid. So if you find it on like Hulu or something, I highly recommend it. Uh, again, I want to talk more about like the later parts and how dark it gets, but it's it's best to go in as blind as possible. What, one more that I want to bring up. Uh, you guys all see VHS 94? Yes. Uh, no. you, Priya? Did you get no. to it? No. I, 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 I stacked my <laughs> okay. Hooptober and got too ambitious with it, and I put 45 titles on it, so I've been trying to <laughs> do that before Halloween. So I, I haven't watched a whole lot of stuff outside of that yet. So, But it's on my list. Um, what did you think of it, Heather? I, I'm sort of <laughs> in the middle on it. Like, Yeah. I think I'm just sort of at the point and I don't mean this against any of the the directors in, in any of these series, but like, I think I'm sort of over anthology from a bunch of different directors getting together because I don't feel like I really enjoy them as much as I enjoy anthologies where you have one through, like, if you look at like, you know, trick or treat, which is, you know, sort of because it's just overlapping stories, but, or something like the mortuary collection, uh, which feels way more like one huge vision with these like really fun little things that kind of play with each other. Um, I mean, I, there's, there's this, I liked, um, and then there are parts that weren't as, as successful for me. Um, you know, I liked, I, I actually was surprised at how much I enjoyed Simon Barrett's uh, section of it because it was just sort of classic kind of good creepiness. Um, Timo's uh, safe Haven is so much better than this, but, it did make me want to watch him like direct, like either like a Bioshock movie or a Doom movie. Um, I'd love to see him take on a first-person shooter type, you know, adaptation because he clearly knows what he's doing in that regard. And there's some fantastic effects. But yeah, I just everybody keeps running around like saying "Hail Ratma," and I just I don't know if I'm ready to join the chorus of of "Hail Ratmas" myself. I think it's the weakest of the series personally. And I think that's because, I mean, I don't know if they rushed into it or this one is the one they actually had the most time for. Ah, See, it it feels like phone ins to me. I like the beginning of each one of the segments, even the wraparound, the beginning. I I really, I like, you know, how it went. Yeah. But it's like, by the time that they get to the payoff, I think they all get kind of corny and goofy. And you're just like, Really? That's where you're going with that? I mean, even, well, Timo's is the only one. Well, I shouldn't say the only one is the one that has the strongest vision. I think it does. And, um, but even that one, by the time you get to the end, you're like, really, <laughs> this is where you're going with it. It's, ah. And then the, the, the Patriot, uh, Patriot militia one, that was another one. By the time you get to the end, you're like, you could have done so much more with this. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. Barrett's is probably the strongest segment. And even that one gets kind of goofy with the effects, but there's a reason for it. You know? Yeah. Hey, man, not all anthology films can be Dead of Night or Spirits of the Dead, you know? <laughs> Deep cuts. But yeah, it's one of those, like, 
in theory, I really love anthologies, but that's maybe just because I grew up loving creep show and, <laughs> you know, and now as I get older, I'm like, do I really love anthologies or just like, do I love anthologies from a single director? What I love about anthologies is that if, if a segment sucks, you only have to wait like 20 minutes at the most True. until another one comes along that might not suck. You know, and that's why the ABCs of death are great for me because those ones are like four minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really quick. So if something's not working. F is boring me. Wait till we get to, to G, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and well, I think it's it, you can have multiple directors. They just have to be unified in the vision because I recently watched uh, Two Evil Eyes, the Dario Argento uh George A. Romero Romero. one. And like that one works really well because they both have two very distinct, you know, styles. But it seems like they were of one collective mind with that one. I I guess it was supposed to be a pilot for a TV series uh, that never got picked up. So they took their two stories and made it into one movie. But it could also be that they were both adapting Poe. So they were working off the same material. That's another thing. I mean, when you're dealing with those two guys, um, that, that's that's different than just an anthology that is just basically collecting short films and sticking them together in in an anthology because that one there was a collective vision from the start and i think the vhs movies do that too but this one just didn't do it for me but i mean that being said my favorite vhs segment of all time is what's it called the strange thing that happened to helen or the um the one that's all that's all through skype in the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, safe Haven is still my favorite. Cause I just love the, the payoff at the end of that one with, I think it's, there's like daddy and you're like, Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> like, you're like, you're really not getting out of this one. What was the, uh, what was the one in uh VHS two where it was like the cult compound and like everything just went to absolute shit. And I think like, that's Timo. That's Safe Haven. Yeah. Yeah. That is Safe that's, Haven. Okay. That's Timo and uh, Gareth Edwards, I believe, that did that. Yeah. Uh, that one. Yeah, because that one. Oh man, that one. It got goofy, but like in a in a really fucked up way. Like when you finally see the beast and stuff, you're just like, all right, I'm in it. <laughs> Not as goofy as the ones in VHS 94. I mean, it VHS 94. I think got goofy on every level. Hey, that's me. As someone who hasn't watched 94, uh, one of my biggest gripes of uh, viral was the fact that they had GoPro footage, but it was supposed to be on a VHS tape. Do they actually <laughs> like address that? That's that's one thing I don't like about found footage films is when it's like, okay, that's clearly not shot on a 16 millimeter. You, you, you That's digital. But like, do they actually like address that? Does it actually look like it's supposed to? I guess. <laughs> Kind of, sort of, if, 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 if you sort of take the context of what they set up in the wraparound, I guess in a way they they do sort of offhandedly explain that, but not directly, if that makes sense. The first one is um, set up like a, and this is the Ratman one, it um, is set up like a news story with like professional cameras. So that one, they kind of get away with it. But the the others, yeah, they're like, um, yeah, I meant more like in terms of like why these VHS tapes actually exist. Oh, why they exist? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, they do set that up in the wraparound. But I, I think Korea, you're talking about like being out of the out of the era, right? You're talking about technology that doesn't exist in '94 or wouldn't be on VHS. Is that what you're talking? 
it's just one of my nitpicks of the of the found footage genre. It's just like it's it's little things like okay, the, no one changed their batteries this whole time. Like, oh god! <laughs> like oh, they're just so happened. You just happen to stop right under a light source, a good light source. You know stuff like that. Uh, it, it it irks me a little bit, but none more so than it's like okay, that's like uh, what was it? There was that Frankenstein's army. Uh, and it was like, oh yeah, this is all found footage that was shot on like a 16 millimeter in the war zone. It's like, okay, no way was someone carrying around that much reels <laughs> and was changing them out in a dark bag and stuff to, to get all this. <laughs> I, I have a hard time suspending belief sometimes with that. I get it. Also found footage with like a score to it always is a little weird to me. Yeah. Like yep. Somebody went, took the time <laughs> to go back and add score. Although the score to Cannibal Holocaust is a classic. That's true. <laughs> uh, what else you guys been watching? Anything good? Uh, I recently saw Night Teeth, which I think uh, will be out in a few days from us recording this. And that's uh, going to be over on Netflix, uh, which is a sort of slick little vampire wars movie. Um, I wasn't sure at first, like how I was going to deal with it. And then it kind of got like, it sort of has like these turf war vibes in like Los Angeles and, for me, I'm a just I'm a sucker for stories set in L.A. So it's like a minute it was like, oh, you know, vampires can't go into Boyle Heights. And I was like, I'm in. OK, cool. <laughs> and I was like, let's do this. Um, but it actually it's, it's it's really fun and not what I was expecting at all. Um, and I'm just I'm I grew up loving vampire stories so much that I'm like, anytime somebody can do something a little different with it, um, I'm on board. So that was actually kind of a big surprise for me. I thought that was kind of fun. Now, does it do something different with vampires? Cause next to zombies, vampires are the most fatigued subgenre for me personally. Does it do something different? And there's a, there's a little bit different lore. Um, they kind of set up like this, like centuries old sort of rivalry that's going on between like, the people who live in Boyle Heights and the vampires and there's like peace amongst them. But then one of the vampires decides to like go against it. And then it sets up like sort of this like Godfather-esque hierarchy. And I don't say Godfather like I'm setting up like this is like a Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> vampire epic or anything. Um, but it just had a very different energy to it, I think. Because I'm like, I love like, you know, stories like the Transfiguration that sort of like they they minimalize it and they sort of leave it a little open to interpretation and they kind of just, you know, they're, they're underplaying a little bit. Um, this is very much in a different direction where, you know, it gets very bloody at times and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, it did. It just like, it didn't quite feel like anything I've seen lately. And, you know, when you watch like hundreds of movies every year, you guys know, like you just want somebody to come along and like sort of surprise you a little bit. So, yeah, I was actually pretty, pretty impressed with that one um, because I kind of just was in it like, oh, OK, I have to cover it. Uh, it came out and I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch this again when it's out. So that was cool. Have you guys been watching the Chucky series? No, I have not. Uh, no. I was going to last night, but I ended up building a model for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I, I didn't know how well Chucky would work in a TV series setting. Um, and I was kind of worried like we'd have sort of like a downplayed Chucky or anything like that. Nope, not at all. Like it is full on Chucky madness. Um, the first episode, like most TV shows, kind of takes a little time to get its footing. Um, but I think when it hits, it's great. And by episode four, I was like 
so into it that I was like, I was mad that I have to wait to watch the rest of these, the series. Um, Cause I was a big fan of cult. I, I love the, ch- the child's play slash Chucky series. And I really liked where cult left everything. And I was really curious because seeing the previews for this, I was like, well, how is this going to play into where cult leaves off? Because that was like, so I just couldn't figure out because like, you've got Charles Lee Ray, basically in the daughter in the body of, of his real life daughter. And, you know, and you've got, I think I'm guessing Jennifer Tilly is still being possessed by Tiffany and the dolls. And I was like, how is this going to all work? Um, but I, I, it started to click for me a little bit. The second time I watched the first episode where I was like, Oh, I see what they're going to do with this. Um, and it's really clever. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Like the second episode is really interesting because you have this main character kid who finds the Chucky doll and of course realizes like this doll's possessed and he can do things. And then and the, the, the lead kid in it, he's gay and his dad wasn't really on board with it. And, you know, sometimes his friends make fun of him for it. And I, what I really appreciated about it, it being a huge seed of Chucky apologist um, is that there's this really sweet moment where Chucky's talking to the kid about Glenn and Glenda and he's like, you know, I have a kid who's, you know, gender fluid and it took me a little time to get used to it. And I just was like, oh, we're like we're giving layers to Charles Lee Ray now. <laughs> um, and then by episode four, he's full blown maniacal. Everything is there's chaos, all kinds of carnage. Um, but, yeah, I was really surprised by how much I loved it. So it's been it's been really fun to kind of see people on uh, online, too, when the episode, the first episode uh, aired this week and just seeing their reactions to it. So I'm, I was really impressed and they go for it for the gore F bombs galore. I was kind of shocked because I was like, this is like, they have this on USA with full on F bombs. And I wasn't expecting that. Oh, I'm sure they beep it when it's on, you know, no, they don't. Do you, they don't. Nope. Oh. Do they show it like after 10 PM or. I think it's because they air at 10 PM. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but no is. sci-fi and, and USA both were unedited. And I was very surprised by that. That's awesome. Did you get one of the Chucky dolls that they were sending out? I did. And I was really surprised because like sometimes I get stuff and sometimes I don't. And so, I, you know, it's just one of those things where I was like, whatever, that's fine. You know, I wasn't too worried about it. Um, and then it showed up at the door and, you know, bless my FedEx delivery guy, because he set it up perfectly in front of the door where it was like upright <laughs> looking at the door. And I was like, oh, he knew he knew. What yeah. he was doing. Uh, Waylon, our, our pal Waylon, um, who uh, he's been on the show three times and he he's one of the iHorror writers. He got one. Um, and, and I think Squires got one, John Squires, another mm, yeah. ex-iHorror guy. Um, I, I've, I've been having fun looking at people post. It seems like, did they tell you to, to post pictures when you got it? Just to jump. Th- it seems like everybody who got one has posted about it. Yeah, no, they, I didn't even know that that was coming. Like they usually like when they're, there's stuff coming to the house, like you'll get an email saying, oh, we just want to confirm your address. And most of the time they're not really specific. And because like the Halloween kills, because I got a Halloween kills drop uh, this week, too. And it was just originally they were supposed to come to my house on Thursday with Michael Myers. And then traffic was just bananas. So they just dropped off the package on Friday, which was fine. Um you know, because I, I don't rarely post like stuff about me with the stuff. I don't know. I'm weird like that. And so I was like, just give me my box of stuff. It's cool. Um, <laughs> and but I had no idea that, that like a full blown Chucky doll was like going to show up at my door. And the thing is like five hundred dollars. Like I looked it up. It's really cool what they sent. I, I'm, I'm on some weird mailing lists that no one else in my groups are on. So I don't know how I got on them. But 
I have never gotten anything as cool as a Chucky doll, but like, um, yeah, I was kind of shocked. I'll be really honest. <laughs> and the thing is also too, it's one of these things where like, look, I understand it's sort of one of the perks of the, the, the game or whatever the job. And I'm always, always grateful, but also, also like I literally have an entire room like <laughs> since the beginning of the pandemic, especially of just boxes of stuff that I don't know what to do with. Do you get for your awards voting? Do you get all the books that they send you? Yes. Yes. I, I have a bookshelf full of these books and they're for like, you know, Roma, the Irishman, you know, that Irishman book, like you could kill somebody with that. <laughs> it, is big, yeah. it is. It is like 40 pounds of book. Yeah. Well, all the Netflix books are like that. The Netflix sends them out um, in these, you know, reinforced cardboard and they're like hefty coffee table books. But who has that many coffee tables? I mean, they send two or three of them a year for different movies. But yeah, I mean, and I love these books. Yeah. But, you know, I'm running out of space. <laughs> yeah. The one year, the the year that Universal was pushing, uh, I think it was us. And some reason I ended up actually getting two copies of that one. So I actually, and I'm whatever, it's been a few years. They can yell at me if they want. But I actually sent the extra one to a teacher friend of mine who teaches film studies um, because I knew that the next year she was going to be teaching us to her class. And I just thought like that would be like a really amazing resource for her to have. So I was, you know, and she's a critic too. And she's like a film producer and stuff like that. So I was like, I was like, they can't be that mad at me, but I'm like, I don't need to. And I feel like somebody should get some really good use out of this. And she actually did use it uh, last year in her class when they were, cause like they were virtual and stuff then and everything. But yeah, so at least I felt like it went to somewhere good that like, you know, could get something really good out of it as opposed to being awesome on my bookshelf. Have you guys watched Midnight Mass at all? Oh, no, I oh need to get gosh. to that. Yes. I, I, I need to get to it. Oh, I, I have to say, I again, I went in blind as hell. All I knew, I didn't I don't even think I watched a trailer for it. All I knew is Mike Flanagan and it was cult stuff. Well, Waylon had recommended it to us. Um, yeah. When we had talked with him on, on our last episode way back when. So I, I need to make time for that because <laughs> Waylon's recommendation and Flanagan. Let me let me tell you, it is absolutely incredible. I think it's his best one that he's done for Netflix so far. Really? And that's saying a lot because I absolutely loved Bly Manor. Better than Gerald's Game? Well, I have his miniseries things. And- oh, okay. Because Gerald's Game is the gold standard of Stephen King adaptations for me. See, I'd actually put Midnight Mass about, like, up in terms of like one of the best things that like Mike Flanagan's done, period. Pretty bold statement with that catalog. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. I need to rethink a lot of my rankings with his other stuff because I was only <laughs> contextualizing it with his Netflix series. But yeah, it's it's really high up. I mean, for me personally, of course, it's going to be high up there when the show in the first five minutes features not one, but two Neil Diamond songs. Like, come yes. on. It's like Flanagan was like, hey, Korea, you're going to love the shit out of this. Uh <laughs> Uh, but yeah, dude, I, I didn't know anything, how they handled uh, the mythology. Like you were saying, Heather, earlier about Night Teeth, it was a very different take on uh, a known thing. There was definitely a lot of moments where I was sitting there just going like, say it, just say the word, say the word. You guys know what these things are. Just say what it is. Uh, but they never do. And I'm not going to say what they are because it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, but really powerful uh, performances, um, especially... Um, uh, the priest, I can't remember the actor's name. Oh, uh, uh, Hamish Linklater. Yeah. He, for like the first half of it, I was like, I can't tell if he's just playing a really goofy character or 
if it's just some like weird acting thing. But then when he gives that sermon in like the third to last episode, I think you know the sermon I'm talking about. That's what I, I knew. That's when I knew. I was like, holy shit, this guy is an incredible actor. If he went from like that, the performances that he's been doing to this insane change and shift of character. But yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I'll probably end up watching it again after uh, Hooptober's over. It's I, I always tell people like it's for me, it feels like the best Stephen King adaptation. That's not an actual Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Like it. It really just dials into like this sort of small town feel. I mean, it just every character matters. Every line of dialogue matters in that show. And and it takes its time too. like it. Uh, you could say it's a slow burn, but I, it didn't feel like a slow burn. It felt like it was just taking its time to like actually flesh out all these characters. All of them have these varying levels of death. Even Henry Thomas's character, who barely says much uh, very early on. Uh, he actually reminded me a lot of my father, which I, I didn't realize until like later in the series. And then all of a sudden I turned to my fiance. I was like, does Henry Thomas remind you of Joe? And she's like, because of the mustache. I was like, well, yeah, but <laughs> you know, just very quiet, barely says anything. It takes place in new England, right? Like it's got to, uh, no, it's actually, uh, off the coast of Oregon, I believe. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's just West coast, new England in it though. <laughs> very true yeah absolutely phenomenal uh everything about it absolutely loved and like it, it goes to some like hard like philosophy and discussions on like life and death and there's some like very carl sagan-esque uh philosophical discussion that's hap that happens like man was that that show was monologue heavy that was a, like an actor's dream i feel though getting those scripts yeah, we call those talkies in our house. <laughs> but that's what I loved about it, because honestly, like I was really I was really upset that it was only seven episodes. I wanted the full ten. Uh, like I felt like we we still should have had three more, even even though everything was perfectly paced. And I, it, there's a certain point in like episode five where I'm like, how are we only have two episodes left? And then and then it, you see it and then it makes sense. But at that point, I was just like, why? Why do we only have one more? You know? only a handful of episodes left like how could this is possible but Flanagan knew what he was doing yeah because like like I wanted more but I also feel like they might have overstepped or overstayed their welcome if they had gone further you know uh, yeah. I, I don't know what else they could have explored I understand there might be like a few loose ends here and there but like overall I think they did what uh, they wanted to do and they did it really fucking well yeah <laughs> let's uh, let's move on to the reason we're here um because we can't, we, we're running long and we need to talk about Heather's book. Yes. <laughs> so, but, I mean, you know, it's a book. It's got words. <laughs> but before we get into the book, I want to ask you um, something that I ask of all of our guests. And it's going to be a little weird because um, it, usually I, if we have composers on, I say, when did you, how did you get into composing? How did you get into cinematography? Um, so let me ask you the same way that I asked Amalia when we had her on. How did, when, when did you know that you were a horror fan? Like what age and what movie did it for you? You know, I mean, it's such a basic answer, um, but it is Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, like great. I grew okay. up always, always being ex like around horror because I grew up with a single mom and in the eighties and, you know, babysitters were expensive back then. And so she was just like the mom who just took me to everything. Um, so you know, at age three, it was like I was seeing an American werewolf in London in theaters, which I don't recommend. 
uh, you take your three, <laughs> three-year-olds to see, um, you know, there's, she, we were always going to the drive-in especially because that was like a really great way to see two movies for cheap and things like that. Um, and then also, as I mentioned, um, my best friend who lived two houses down, her parents are really into like horror sci-fi. So like at her house, we, I was maybe age five and she was like six and we were watching movies like alien and the thing and Salem's lot. And like, that was just like normal. And, you know, so it was just, it never really occurred to me that other kids weren't watching the same things. And then it was like, and then it really hit me um, when I finally got to see nightmare on Elm street. Cause it was one of those, like our parents wanted to see it first to see if we could handle it. And then they were like, eh, I don't know. And then I took months of begging and I finally got my mom to agree to let me watch it. And I just love it's like for as terrified as I was of Freddy Krueger at age like six and a half or whatever it was when I first saw it, maybe almost seven. Um, I, there was something really that fascinated me and that hooked me. And I loved the way it challenged me. And even back then I could sense because Nancy was also living with her mom. Like there was like this like kinship that I felt and I was just hooked. And it was like one of those things, like when every time we would go to the video store, the first place we would always like head to is right to the horror section. And a few years later, that's when I discovered Terror in the Isles, um, which is the, the movie, yeah. the clip movie with Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen. Introduced so many people to so many great movies. And that is why I think everybody who knows about Alone in the Dark found out about Alone in the Dark. Oh, absolutely. Because that was like <laughs> my Bible as a kid. Like I would go find the copy of Terry Isles and I would like look at the cover and try to figure out, find the names of the titles I hadn't seen. And I would go looking around the video store for them. Ironically, most of them weren't in the horror section, um, but it did open me up to a lot of things. Although, again, I don't really recommend like renting Vice Squad when you're eight. Like that's a little too much. But I did <laughs> like that was around the same time I saw Suspiria, which um, also kind of uh, mentally scarred me. And it's one that my best friend never let me forget that I would actually rent that movie um, because it, ter- it still terrifies her to this day. Um, but yeah, so it was just like, I was completely, hooked. I was always like the weird kid who liked horror and wrestling. Um, and a lot of my friends didn't know what to do with that. My guy friends knew what to do with that because I was the cool girl who wasn't all like uppity and girly about things where I was like, yeah, let's go pretend to be, you know, Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat and get dirty and wrestle around in the dirt and stuff and whatever, or go watch the weird <laughs> movies. Um, So, yeah, it was just it was just always kind of there. And it's funny because like my mom sort of grown out of it a little bit. But like when I would go home to visit, she'd always try to put something on that was horror to make me feel like I was like at home or something. (laughs) Even I know she was hating it. I remember like one year it was like I remember when Scream came out and I thought she was going to love it because it was so different and like unique and it blew my mind. And so like we we took her to see it like the second night because I went the opening night. Uh, with my ex and then we took her the second night to see it and I was like oh she's gonna love this and like the look of horror on her face the entire time and she just was like why would you take me to this and I was like oh boy okay but you know cut to how many how many years later I'm visiting at home and she's like oh I just found Scream 4 on TV I know you like those movies and I was like oh that's nice so yeah I think it's just always been there like I was the person who like my friends wouldn't come play at my house because I had a Freddy Cougar poster in my room and it scared the crap out of them. <laughs> now, when you were, you know, watching these at age six or whatever, did you know they were movies? I mean, could, could you see the figurative zipper up the back of the monster or, you know, you know, what changed that for me? 
It was the behind the scenes for Thriller. Okay. Because um, as I mentioned, my best friend said her, he worked for a district um, Warner brothers. They had like distribution centers for all of their music uh, labels. So it was called WIA, which was Warner Electra and Atlantic. And so they had a, he, he worked at the, the WIA distribution center because we lived right near O'Hare. So a lot of things, it was easy to ship stuff there and all that kind of stuff. So they had a big distribution uh, warehouse there. And so he was bringing home stuff all the time. So for as much as we were like exposed to movies, music was also huge too. And we didn't have cable because I grew up like in a trailer park and they didn't have like cable in there. So we'd have to rely on people to like tape things for us and stuff like that. So Everybody was like, kept talking about the Michael Jackson thriller music video. And we hadn't seen it. And they finally released the VHS tape of it. And he brought it home and we watched it scare the crap out of us. But right after they had that behind the scenes, like mini doc about it. And that was when it clicked that the monsters were these creations of these people and that there was real artists behind these things. Like that was my first introduction to Rick Baker. And I had no idea that there was like all of these really talented people behind these kind of things, um, which then kind of like made me even more obsessed with it because then I was like always trying to like, I was like the weird kid who was always trying to like connect directors and, you know, writers and like artists and things like that. When most kids like, you know, they just went to see movies, you know, they didn't care that Steven Spielberg produced it. They just wanted to go see Goonies because it's a fun movie. Uh, whereas not like me, I was like, oh, but he produced this and he did gremlins and like how, you know, it was just weird, like how my brain kind of started to compartmentalize certain things, um, which is why I think I was always kind of destined for this, even if I didn't know how to get to this point back then. Um, but I just kind of always knew that like somehow horror would factor into it. I just didn't realize like how that would would ever happen. I'm still figuring out how it happened to too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great segue into the book because um, this book, your book is, and it comes out this Tuesday, the 19th, correct? Uh, the 20th. The 20th. Wednesday. I mean, technically if you've pre-ordered it um, through the publisher, people already have copies of it. Okay. So it's sort of an arbitrary release date at this point. Um, but that's when it officially like will get launched on Amazon and things like that. Okay. But the, the book is called Monsters, Makeup and Effects, Volume 1. And the subtitle is Conversations with Cinema's Greatest Artists. And um, you've been interviewing these people for a long time. I mean, th this book, uh, this is not a small little pamphlet this is almost 500 pages <laughs> yes and it is how many artists are in it i mean there's dozens each book um is going to be at least 20 artists um we i've collected a little over 80 interviews now so I, the first two books are going to both be 20 artists each the third and fourth volumes are probably going to be loaded with a couple extra interviews um, also because some of them turned into, turned into like sort of tribute pieces, um, because of just factors that came up, like, um, one of the artists that I'd really been trying to talk to for years, cause I started all of this back in April of 2016. Um, and unfortunately we've lost several key figures in the, in, in the effects industry since then. And one of those people was John Carl Beekler, who oh. he was somebody who came up in so many conversations that I had because he was the guy when people got to Hollywood, he was always willing, you know, a lot, a lot like Roger Corman, he was always willing to give people a chance to come in 
hone their skills, get better, get that set experience and just really be creative. Um, you know, even if you couldn't pay them a lot, he always paid them. And that was one thing that I thought was interesting is one of the people that I interviewed for his tribute was Kane Hodder because they were such close friends and everything like that. And even though he's not technically part of the effects industry, I figured Kane still had so much, you know, in, insight into how John was in that world. Um, but he was telling me, you know, a lot of these times when like shops would be with be between jobs, like, you know, most of the times, like they would just shut the shop down for a few months, tell you to go find work elsewhere. Uh, but John Beekler was not that guy. Like he took care of his people. There were times where he didn't have money to pay people. And so essentially he was like taking second mortgages out to keep people pay- paid during those downtimes, uh, which he didn't have to do. And he wasn't, you know, I wouldn't call him the, the world's greatest artist, um, but I would say he's probably one of the most influential because we have so many artists who have gone on to become these mega talented people in the industry because of him. And also because of the way that he was able to diversify himself in the industry as well as a director and a writer and things like that. Um, to me, his, he has this huge legacy and I didn't want to ignore that simply because I couldn't interview him. So for example, in book two, we're going to have a tribute to him in there because I just felt like he needed to be represented. Now. Okay. I want to know a little bit about how can I put this, the methodology for writing this book, because clearly you interviewed all these people, but this doesn't come across as an interview book. It's like there, and and I haven't read it cover to cover because it's 500 pages, but you know, I, I kind of just, I, I it's a lot. I get it. it, You know, and yeah, especially because, you know, I I haven't had it all that long, but um, it, you're basically letting these people tell their story in their own words. And clearly you ask them a question and then just let them go. And then you'll pop in as the, you know, the, the Morgan Freeman narrator saying, and then so-and-so did this, you know, or not really Morgan Freeman, more like Richard Dreyfus in Stand By Me, I guess, you know, yeah. a little setup and then let them continue. And I think it's a great way. It's, it's not just ask question, get an answer, ask question, get an answer. You're, these people's stories are in their own words and you kind of guide it. Um, how do these interviews go? Is, is it just like that? You would just basically get them talking and roll tape? Yeah, I, for me, you know, one of the, the important things um, for me when I was doing this is I didn't want to center myself in this project in any way because it wasn't about me. And that was one of the things like because we have a, a signing coming up uh, in November, at Dark Delicacies, you know, and I said to the artists when I emailed them just to let them know, like, we're doing this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, look, guys, like this book doesn't exist without you, but it could exist without me. So for me, it my biggest priority has always been making sure that this book is about the artists that you're reading. And so I wanted to pull myself out of, out of it as much as possible. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to call it, talk about the conversations as part of the title, because it really was, it wasn't, you know, and there, there's a few exceptions and I'll get into that, but m- most of it was just me sitting down and just talking to people in just a very conversational way, because if you kind of come at people like sort of a very dry Q and a way, like you're not going to get real sort of responses. You're going to kind of get sort of limited to where you're, what you've asked. And so I just wanted to like, just let people go with it because one, you know, 
so many of these folks, when they get interviewed, they just get interviewed about like, well, how did you make this? And how did you make that? And there's some, you know, there's some conversations that sort of touch on those things a little bit, but that wasn't really the point of it. I just wanted to talk to them about their experiences, you know, the things that they've, you know, that influence them as artists, you know, like sort of their own creative processes, you know, for some of them who have branched out outside of the effects industry, like what motivated them to do that um, and things like that. And I will say there's, there are a few exceptions. Um, one of them is there's an interview in book two with Chris Wallace, um, who it's funny because I right now I have a very low just to keep my dogs kind of quiet. And there's a little bit of noise in the room. I have the, the fly actually playing very quietly right now. Um, but he's one of my all time favorites. And but most people don't realize that he has almost complete hearing loss. So to sit down with to do an interview with him is impossible because it's it's very painful for him. And I, uh, you know, obviously, I don't want to put somebody through something that's going to make them uncomfortable. So for Chris, he and I, we would go back and forth on email over the course of several months. And so I'd ask him like a set of questions. He would answer. I would kind of take, you know, look at his responses, kind of figure out if I was having a conversation with him, where would I go then? Um, And so that was kind of the back and forth with him. And then the other one that's a little tougher, which will be coming in book three or four, is I sat down with the Kyoto brothers who are amazing and I love them and they're such sweet guys. But they're they're really funny when they get the three of them together to talk because they're the kind of guys who like they, you know, they're brothers. They, they know everything about each other. They finish each other's sentences. They talk over each other. That's really <laughs> hard to transcribe into just a, a fluid converse, <laughs> like a fluid chapter. So it was one of those where I realized like with them, I'm like, I'm going to have to stage it more like a Q&A and just hope people are accepting of that. But also because I didn't want to like take away from what one of them might've said that may not work. Like I just wanted to feel like it was the real conversation that I had with them. So there are a few exceptions, um, but I feel like for over 80 interviews, if there's a few of them that sort of play by a more traditional Q&A style, like hopefully people will be, uh, you know, okay with that you know, and be okay, you know, and realize the other 80 or so interviews are standard and, you know, had a lot more uh, meat on their bones, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> so, so you have four volumes planned of this. Um, yes. Who are some, and, and I know this is going to be a bit like asking you to pick your favorite child, but who are some <laughs> of the standouts that are in this volume one that is releasing this week? You know, um, for me, first and foremost, Tom Berman was high on my list. And I had actually been interviewing or I've been uh, emailing him since the beginning and I didn't get responses. And I don't even know if I had the right email address. Um, and it just wasn't clicking and I wasn't hearing from him. But like Planet of the Apes was such a huge influence on me as a kid. And I was like, well, gosh, if he is still here, I, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about Planet of the Apes. I love Scrooge. I love Sloth from Goonies. Like there's so many characters that he did, like basically the work that he and his wife did on Nip Tuck basically revolutionized how far you could start taking special effects on television, uh, particularly like basic cable and things like that. And so just after a few years, I wasn't getting to him. But then I also realized like, oh, gosh, you know, I really want to get some more interviews with female talent because I want to make sure that it's not just, you know, sorry, gentlemen, like a sausage fest up in here where it's 80 interviews with dudes. Um, And I knew his wife actually had a really interesting background because she came from like a fine arts like study. Like she had set out to have a completely different career 
um, and ended up in, in special effects. So I reached out to her and I, I finally heard from Barry. And so they, she actually invited me to come out to their house to meet with her to do her interview. And it was like, I show up at the door and Tom just opens the door and I was like, oh my God, okay, I'm not freaking out. And then, so we just kind of <laughs> chatted a little bit and it was funny because like after we were done, like she was like showing me some stuff in their workshop and everything. And I got to see like one of uh, a set of the original appliances from Planet of the Apes that they still had. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And they're like, you can touch it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> um, and so I just kind of approached him and said, you know, would you be interested in doing this too? And he's like, yeah, sure. And so that was my in, you know, a little bit with Tom. Um, but it's great because the, what I learned from both of their stories is they're so different in how they approach things because Tom, his dad, Ellis Berman, senior, like, you know, was an effects guy. So he almost had this legacy that he came into um, where Barry, like I said, she came from a fine arts background, which is a, a, which is why I think they work together so well, because they're both focused on different things. Um, but talking to Tom was like a dream because like, I was hearing like all the stories of like when him and John Chambers were working with like the CIA, uh, which is basically some of the stuff that you see in the movie Argo, which is kind of cool. Um, and then just getting to hear about like his stories with Richard Donner, um, you know, which again, as a kid from the eighties, like Richard Donner was like such a huge influence on me as a movie fan. Um, so he was really one of those, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. I mean, all of them really are. Um, but like, especially just for the legacy of like, I can just still remember how I felt the first time I ever saw planet of the apes and just being able to sort of indulge like seven-year-old me who's like on the inside just freaking out like oh my gosh you're really getting to talk about all this stuff um so that was a really big one um v neil is another one that i absolutely love because she's just so freaking cool um and she's <laughs> just one of these people who like you know coming up in an industry at the at the time that she did you know there was maybe like two or three other women doing the stuff that she was doing um, and that she was able to sort of hang in there with the boys club um, and then do everything on her own terms. And then um, and I always joke with people because, you know, everybody likes to to nitpick, you know, on Twilight, which is fine. It's fine. I don't care. I have no uh, sense of affection towards the movies. But, they, you know, V. Neal is technically the first person to ever give us sparkly vampires <laughs> through the Lost Boys. So whenever everybody gets mad about sparkly, you know, sparkly vampires, I was like, well, we actually had them in 87 because she just thought it would be fabulous to add glitter to all the vampire blood. And Joel Schumacher agreed. Um, so I just that's like one of my little favorite things is like, you know, she actually did sparkly vampires before Twilight. But did, did she do the sweat on the sexy sax guy, though? I don't even think she had to. I think that probably was all natural. <laughs> that was real. <laughs> <laughs> that was authentic. Um, but yeah, and she's, you know, she's won several Oscars now. She's been, I think she was nominated eight times. She's won three. She's won multiple Emmys. She started her own school. And I just, being a girl, being a woman who has worked in a field that up until recently was kind of primarily male dominated. Um, there was a lot that I really related to with the stories that she told um, and her talent is just incredible. Like she made Mrs. Doubtfire look real and in a way that didn't like, wasn't scary. It didn't look like a, you know, like a drag queen, like as she put it, like there was something authentic to the way that that character looked. Um, so that was really cool. And then of course, talking to like somebody like screaming mad George um, was just like a mind blowing experience because of all the stuff that he's done. 
And he was super tricky to kind of coordinate with because he's back in Japan now. And so I had to be up at like 4 a.m. to do that call. And I usually go to bed at like 4 a.m. <laughs> so <laughs> trying to like get on my game and like be ready to do this kind of an interview at like that hour of the day. And it was it was really, really tough. Um, but it's interesting because you, you mentioned how everything's framed. And I had a couple of people come back to me like because one of the things I, I do with all of these is everybody gets to see their chapter before it goes to print because I don't want to make anybody upset. I want to make sure everybody is happy with it, with, you know, what's out there. Um, you know, I don't want to, you know, get anybody mad at me or anything like that. And I've had a few people saying like, well, you know, there's just a lot of me talking here. And I'm like, well, that's kind of the point. Like, <laughs> you know, they're not, I mean, yes, you need the segues and things like that, but ultimately like your stories are the reason people are going to be reading this. It's not me trying to prove how smart I am by like putting this connective tissue together and like in terms of like different movies and stuff like there's some of that in there. Um, but ultimately it really was just about representing their voices here in a way that felt authentic, but again, didn't feel like it was about me. Well, that's, that's what it is. It's um, it's their stories. And then you pop in to add context every once in a while. Yeah, because I also feel, too, because like sometimes if somebody's, you know, I know like there's going to be horror fans that are going to read this and movie fans, but I want somebody who maybe isn't as familiar to be able to pop in and like they may not know every, you know, every single movie that the Stan Winston, you know, crew worked on. So it's like sometimes you have to remind them like, oh, so Invader from Mars was going on now while this was going on and that was going on. And, you know, things were crazy when they were doing Monster Squad because then Predator came in last minute. So it's kind of like just sort of setting the stage a little bit for people. So they kind of get an understanding of like, oh, OK, this is how this was. And I definitely want to applaud the fact that this is a focus on their lives and their careers, because like you were saying, I do own a couple uh, effects books and whatnot, especially from Tom Savani. Oh, yeah. And, the Grand Illusions books. Like, of course. Oh, I, I love those books, uh, but they always just mainly focus on, you know, the art, which is awesome. And I'm so happy to have those books, but I'm, I was really appreciating your, your book on just hearing their stories and how one project led to another. Uh, I will admit, I jumped to the V Neil chapter, huge fan <laughs> of her. Uh, she's the reason why I watched Face Off for so long. Because uh, gotcha. I, I, she just seems like the coolest person ever. But um, but yeah, it was just so cool seeing like not only her story, but like I, I like you know, especially working in the industry, it, it is crazy how one project can lead to another, and it's not always about like one thing, you know. Uh, it's not like, oh, yeah, this director liked me. It might be some random crew member or somebody else. And it was cool seeing those connections happen between all these different films that were like so iconic and dear, but also seeing like the connections where it's like, oh, yeah, I did a couple episodes of this TV show, which led to this big movie, you know. Um, it's it's always very interesting seeing those uh, develop. So it was really cool hearing that from their voice. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I, that was also one of the things that I wanted. Again, somebody who maybe, you know, even if they're not interested in special effects, maybe they just have like a general interest in like movies or something like that. Like, I want them to understand like so much of this industry is about relationships and people can be denied all. You could be so talented, but if you don't have relationships, you're not going to go as far as somebody who is able to build those connections with other creatives working out here. So, for me, it was kind of showing people like talent is fantastic, 
vision is great. Like dedication, of course you want that. You want, you know, that, that grit, you want somebody who wants to really, you know, put, put their stamp on, on the work that they're doing, but ultimately it doesn't mean anything if you're not going to be able to like take it any further. And I think for me, it's like the one thing that I've been grateful for in being a part of sort of this horror entertainment journalism world, you know, for the last 14 years is that I've always been really conscientious about being good to people. And most of the, you know, most of the time it's, it works out where I've, you know, I've made some really fantastic connections, you know, made some, you know, long lasting relationships with people, you know, sometimes it blows up in my face too. You know, that's just being a human being and, you know, that's the experience. Um, but ultimately, like, I'm just a big believer that like you put whatever you put out into the world, you're going to get back. And, you know, if you're somebody who people don't want to work with, or people think you're this or that, like that can be really detrimental. And it's funny because one of the chapters in, you know, and he's super, he, he owns it now because that's just kind of who he is. But like one of the people who sort of had that kind of a, uh, a reputation uh, with Steve Johnson. And I love Steve. Steve and I are friends. So we, we joke about this, but like, he's been known to be a little persnickety, a little uh, uppity, like, you know, and he kind of, and he'll tell you like, you know, don't go out and do a ton of drugs and waste all your money because that's where I ended up where I, you know, how I'm not living in a mansion these days. Cause I blew it all in the eighties and the nineties. Um, so he's more of a cautionary tale in a way, but also he made some of the greatest creature creatures, creatures and cre uh, creations we've ever seen too. Um, but, you know, he'll tell you like, yeah, I kind of blew a few relationships here or there and it ended up curtailing certain aspects of his career and, but he owns it now and he's got a good sense of humor about it. But I get a sense sometimes like through this sense of humor, there is probably a tinge of sadness about like, gosh, you know, maybe if I had just done this, things would be different. Um, but I know he's done some FX stuff in the last few years. So he's kind of coming back into the fold and stuff. Um, but he's a really fascinating uh, character because he's very blunt and very honest about everything. Um, and that could be a lot to take. Cause I will tell you the, the, I'd interviewed him before because years um, and back in 2015, I did a, uh, a entire magazine dedicated to the 30th anniversary of Fright Night. So I interviewed him and we had a great conversation and stuff. So when I set out to do the series, you know, I, I went to him and he had already, the stuff was going, you know, in the works with his Rubberhead series. So I was, and he was like, well, I don't know. He's like, I already have my own books. And I was like, I get it. But, you know, you, you may not see your, you might see your career differently than I'm going to see your career. So, you know, we can promote your book in here. It's fine. And he was like, okay, fine. And then I would, we tell the story. And we actually told the story of Flashback Weekend because um, they had our Fright Night reunion a few years ago in Chicago. And I was there to co-host. And the day that we did our interview, we were on Skype. And so basically, Steve comes on and he was just like, okay, I quit smoking today. I hate everything. How are we going to do this where I'm not going to want to kill myself by the time we're done? And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and I'm, I can pretty much roll with the punches, but I kind of froze for like a minute. I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Because I don't want him. I don't want him to be at this level, the entire interview. And so I just kind of figured out a way to kind of sort of approach things from a different angle. And by the end, he was like, you know, that was really fun. And he was like, this is one of the best interviews I've had. 
And he was like, I feel like this was great. And I was like, oh, phew. <laughs> so I knew if I could do that, I could do anything. You know, basically at that point, I was like, I've got it covered. So I survived that one. But we joke about it now and we're, we're, we're good friends and stuff. But it was, it was one of those where I was like, you, sometimes you just catch people on the wrong day and you're like, uh-oh, I've stepped into it now. Yeah, but you can definitely tell with uh, how people are telling their stories and the things that they're talking about in this book that uh, you 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 put your heart out there. Like, there's a lot of personal details uh, in, in in these retelling of their lives and their careers uh, that it felt like a very natural conversation. So, like you were saying, Heather, and putting you know essentially putting good vibes out there. You can, you can feel that in the, and how they talk and uh, it comes through in the writing. Definitely. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I will say, um, I don't know if you guys have gotten to the chapter for David Leroy Anderson, um, but he, so he is married to Heather Langenkamp in real life and they had actually met each other because of shocker. Um, so they have a really fun little meet cute story. Um, but I thought, so I wanted to interview him one because I loved cabin in the woods. And I love the fact that we just get like all these amazing creatures and crazy characters and things like that. I was like, well, yeah, I got to talk to this guy. Um, and then I also thought it was really fascinating too how he's basically wa watched his life elements of his life get played out for new nightmare too, which I always thought was really funny and interesting. Um, because you know, that movie, basically mirrored a lot of their lives um, in the early nineties, because Heather was dealing with a really scary stalker for a long time. Um, so much to the point where I think it was, I think it might've been alien three. I can't remember. I, I think it was alien three because I believe it was Alec Gillis who called them, called him to ask him if he wanted to go to London for six months and they both just wanted to escape. And they were like, yes, we're going, let's just do this. Um, and so when I started the interview with him and he's, a fantastic human being. I adore him. I adore his dad, Lance, who's also in this first book. So we were just having this conversation and we get up to Star Trek and he was like, you know, Heather, he's like, I'm going to have to finish this another day. And which I'm always open to, you know, I'm, I'm really flexible with people because especially we could be talking for a few hours and I, I didn't think much of it. And he was like, can we connect like in a couple of weeks? And I said, yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, you know, anything you need. And so a few weeks goes by, I get an email, we set up our second interview and we start talking about Star Trek and he started, you know, he's talking about like he's sitting in this meeting and he gets a phone call and it's his son was in college and he was overseas and he had a medical emergency. And, you know, so I'm thinking we're just going to have a typical conversation. Um, as it turns out, over the course of those years, his, his son ended up battling a brain tumor. You know, very, you know, kid in his 20s having to deal with all these major issues, which also put a huge like sort of wrench into how things went in their home, because that meant, you know, if Heather was working, David needed to be home or vice versa, um, because they needed to be take care of their son, Atticus, who had, you know, surgeries and recoveries and things like that. And at a certain point, Atticus was even working in their shop while he was in recovery um, in fact, he got to go to the Emmys at the year that they won for American Horror Story Hotel. So because Atticus actually did uh, appliances for Lady Gaga, which was kind of cool. And so, you know, we're having this conversation. And then David basically tells me, like, you know, one of the reasons we had to to stop where we were, he's like, because we just celebrated the one year anniversary of losing Atticus. And I was just like, whoa. And so we talked a lot about that and I wasn't expecting it. And I will tell you 
there's a lot of that conversation because I just kind of let David talk um, where I was on mute because I was crying um, and I was I had no idea. And I, I thought of Heather being at all these conventions while her kids at home sick and she's out there putting on a brave face for fans, you know, because she knew that she needed to do that in order to provide for her family and what kind of strength that must have taken for both of them to like have to go out there into the world and still be these people while they're dealing with the stuff that they're dealing with at home. And so one of the things we sort of ended up kind of treating the last half of his, his chapter as a tribute to Atticus and the things that they sort of learned about themselves and learned about their son and learned about life through this whole process. Um, And that to me ended up sort of being like the most moving of the chapters that I did, because I think it made me sort of really appreciate the things that I have. Um, And I was just sort of stunned. And I will say the best compliment that I have received from anybody in this whole process. um, And I don't don't mean to make it sound like I play favorites, but I, I sent David his chapter to read and it just so happened to be the day before father's day. And so he actually emailed me on father's day and he's like, Heather, He's like, this is the greatest Father's Day gift I've ever been given. And he's like, thank you so much for this. And that really moved me. And that's, I think I've always treated this seriously in the fact that I want to make sure people's lives and their careers and their legacies are being honored. But to know like how important this became to certain people, that's when it felt like, that's when it got real for me, where I was like, okay, like there's this, there's a purpose to this. Um, and that it might just not be, you know, me trying to throw out some stories for the sake of telling stories. Like there's something real to this in a way that I just hadn't felt before. Um, so I, and again, it's one of those things where I always tell people, I'm so grateful that people were willing to sit with me and be open with me and be honest with me and share the things that they did with me because they didn't have to. Um, but people got very candid with me and I, I appreciate that. And it was one of those things too. Also, as I was going through the process of like, well, was that for me or is that for the book? Because sometimes we'd have sort of stories where I think it was in some ways them sort of exercising some of these past feelings and things like that. Um, but yeah, I just, I wasn't expecting that experience. And then last week, Heather actually tweeted about it. Um, how she was so surprised about reading about her own husband because there were things she didn't even know. And I was just like, I, and I actually cried. <laughs> I'm such a sap. Um, but I just wasn't expecting that at all because it wasn't like I'd asked anybody to tweet about the book or anything like that. Um, and to me, I was like, wow, I surprised your wife who you've been living with for 30 years almost. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, it's just been a real, like, I just, I still can't believe I've gotten to do it, like all the stuff that I've done. I saw that tweet from, he- from uh, Heather Langkamp and I was like, yeah, she's going to be on our show. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we, um, we have to stick a fork in this because we're running super long. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm Here, so oh no, 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 it's, no, it's, no, no, no. The, 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 this is great. These, this is a great interview. In fact, we need to have you on for every volume that comes out. You got it. <laughs> I, I will be back. <laughs> we'll yeah. have you on for all four. What is the release schedule looking like? Well, this one is October. I know initially we were going to plan to go like every six months, but I've also, in the meantime, my publisher, um, who is amazing, um, he actually has lined up other book projects for me as well. So there is something, some other stuff that I'm working on that might have to take a little bit of precedence. So I might bump volume two back a little bit 
just one to give a little more space, um, but two also give me a little time to kind of focus on this other project before I have to start jumping in to promote that one. Like I've already finished the manuscript for book two, so it's done. It's you know, it's 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 out there, um, but I want to make sure that like I'm not short, like I'm not going to shortchange the other stuff that I'm working on because I have to start promoting that one. So I might try to wait till like July or August. Um, but then once I kind of get through that, then I can like, we're thinking all of them should be out before like the end of 2023. We'll have you on for any of your other projects too. We'll, oh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> we'll I have, have to be you on any time. I have to be a little, uh, a little sort of non-specific about those. Cause one of them, I think it's going to get uh, announced in December. So I don't want to step on anybody's uh, toes with that. Um, but I've just, I like, again, it's, it's one of those things just to, I'm so grateful for my publisher too, who's just been amazing and so supportive and like, I'm just, I'm thrilled and I can't believe I'm here finally. Like I've been doing this for so long. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. I'm like, I've, it's like the first finish line of four. So it feels good. We'll have you on for any project you do. I would love that. That would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for joining us here and, and for rearranging your schedule to fit ours. Um, this, is, this has been an awesome interview. And e even though it has run long, but uh, that's my problem as an editor. Actually, I'm just going to let this one go probably. And we'll just have a long episode. And if people don't listen to it, they don't listen to it. <laughs> oh, they will. If they start listening. Like, you've been a great guest, Heather. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. <laughs> this book comes out this week. Um, you said Wednesday, which is the 20th. Um, so by the time this posts, you it will have been last week. So go and get it. Uh, guess what? I have a book coming out this week, too. Not a whole book. But um, I have an essay in a book called uh, 2020, The Year of the Asterisk um, that comes out Tuesday on the 19th. It's a bunch of essays. Um, from people about uh, their lockdown experience. And I've only read mine, but I'm pretty sure mine is going to be the most depressing one in it because it's about watching my dog die while I was uh, locked down. I know. I know. didn't mean to bring the conversation down. But anyway. If it, if it makes me feel any better, we lost three of our cats during oh, all of this. That's so you know I what? I, I, I actually follow you on Twitter and I did see all of that. And it was just, it, it hit home for me too, because I also lost a cat about a year before that to diabetes. Uh, so I, why can't pets just live forever? That's what I'm asking. Like, I, I actually kind of almost understand the people who clone their animals to be really honest. I'm like, <laughs> could I be a mega millionaire and start doing that? Like, is that my life goal now? Yeah, may, uh, maybe. So, yeah. So if, while you're uh, at the bookstore picking up uh, Monsters, Makeup and Effects, Volume 1, look for 2020, the year of the asterisk and uh, pick that up as well. Um, so uh, for us, uh, let's see. Our, our theme song is by Restless Spirit. So check them out. Hey, Korea, did you see that Paul, the guitar player for Restless Spirit, got married? I did. He got married and they put out a new music video yeah, too and for their new <laughs> single. They also I, they, they bought a new tour van and I joked with him that it's the nicest tour van I've ever seen. So they must've signed to a label and he kind of shrugged it off. And then they announced they got signed to some indie. So yeah, things are happening. Um, and congratulations to Paul and Jamie on your nuptials and have a, uh, have a happy life together. Our artwork was by Chris Fisher. Nothing's going on with Chris, but I'm sure that his star Wars fan film will be out soon. Um, Heather, where can people find you? if they want to keep up with uh, what you're doing, like on oh, yeah. the socials. 
Uh, yeah, I'm basically just hanging out on Twitter. So I, I gave up Facebook like eight years ago and I've never been sad about it. So I'm basically <laughs> over on Twitter over at the horror chick. Um, and then also we have a, an account set up for uh, the book as well, which is um, MMEFX book. Um, so you can go follow over there. A lot of times I like I'll post like a lot of BTS photos and stuff like that, but mostly just like buy the book, please. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody buy the book. Uh, so <laughs> you can find us um, at the Eye on Horror Facebook, the Eye on Horror Twitter, the Eye on Horror uh, Instagram, uh, the Eye Horror Facebook, the Eye Horror iHorror.com, I guess, is what that is. Uh, what else, Korea? Where else can you find us? I uh, will I think you hit them all: Twitter, Did Facebook, <laughs> you know, uh, Instagram. We we haven't been posting that much, but you know, uh, if you go uh, uh, click on our links, we have a link tree where we'll have uh, links to all of our social medias as well as some uh, other fun articles. We'll have uh, links to our guests. Uh, stuff as well and also don't forget if you are in the uh, Los Angeles area Heather is doing a signing at Dark Delicacies on November 6th uh, of her book so definitely come out uh, I see on the site that it says TBD on guests uh, yes, so far ooh. the only one that we have um, confirmed is Venial so I, it's, it's one of those like everybody's back to work now yeah. And also some folks still have, you know, some of the older folks have like some COVID concerns, which I totally understand. So we're kind of waiting. Uh, but so it might just be me and V, me and V. Oh, that sounds fun. Uh, hanging out that day. Um, but it should be a blast. So if you don't want to come out for me, come out for V. Basically, is <laughs> what I'm saying. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'm coming out. I already have it bookmarked <laughs> on my calendar. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm in San Diego, so I won't be coming out, but I'll be there in spirit with Korea. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we will uh, see you in a couple of weeks. So for me, James J. Edwards. I'm Jonathan Korea. And I'm Heather Wixon. Keep your eye on horror. 